Hello and welcome to another episode of the Book Baby Spotlight Podcast, your home for interviews with authors, illustrators, and other industry insiders from the world of self-publishing. My name's Sam and I'm joined as always by my co-host Jasmine. Hey folks, we've got two great guests today. But first, I want to ask you about this report about returning ebooks on Amazon. Sure, fire away. A conversation started on TikTok earlier this summer, which got picked up by NPR and other media outlets. Essentially, people are reading ebooks on Amazon and then returning them within the seven day policy. The policy itself hasn't changed, but someone called this a hack for free ebooks and posted online about it and got immediate blowback. You know, a lot of authors, especially self published ones, have been uh, seeing returns in their sales reports and were upset that people were viewing this as a good idea when it pretty directly hurts the author. And these aren't accidental purchases, right? No. And, you know, that's what Amazon's policy was supposed to be for. Uh, but Amazon is pretty lenient. Uh, they always try to put the retail customer first in this situation. Uh, and as a result, they allow for returns for, you know, even a whole series of ebooks, which have been obviously read. You didn't buy one book and then try to return it and then uh, because you didn't like it and then buy the second, third and fourth book in the series. That would just be crazy. Uh, if you pull one over on Amazon, that's one thing. But the authors are just trying to make a living on their writing. Right. It's one thing to move against a corporation, but another one affects the writers behind the work. What do you think it would take for self-published authors to find a way to protect their royalties while this is happening? So I think that the education that the authors have been offering on the topic is helpful. People maybe didn't even realize what they were doing had an effect on them, uh, but really it would require an Amazon policy change in favor of authors. Uh, they are attempting to crack down on some fraud, so maybe it's coming. I don't know. Uh, but the better plan, though, is to use the Book Baby Bookshop. Uh, we do not accept returns in this manner, so it is not an issue. Yeah, I really love how our priority is our self-published authors, so that published work is protected. I also know that we post sales info a lot sooner, and the royalty rate is, in fact, higher than Amazon KDP. So if you're listening and looking to self-publish, scope out Book Baby. That's right. And we got lots of new features and improvements we're rolling out seemingly weekly at this point. To learn more about what's new with Book Baby, Jasmine and I are lucky enough to be joined by the one and the only Book Baby President Emeritus, Stephen Spots. Stephen, we're halfway through 2022. How's paper looking? Incredible that we're through halfway through the year. By the way, hi, Sam and Jasmine. Nice to see you again. Well, we're in a really good, good place with paper. Our procurement team, which I think is world class, along with the rest of the people at Book Baby, by the way. But they really outdone, have done, outdone themselves and have sourced you know, the best paper um, supply, I think, of any publisher out there. Um, we're getting calls from a lot of people right now and have last three or four months, people saying, my God, my printer doesn't have paper. Do you? And the answer is yes. Um, it's not easy to get, and especially of the quality. But we've maintained great relationship with paper vendors and really have the pipeline flowing. So bring it on. Get those books to us. We'll be able to meet the demand of you know this holiday season and way beyond as we even forge a new relationship. And the supply situation will loosen up, and maybe there'll be some paper left over for the other guys too. But maybe not. Well, that sounds great because that that has been an issue now for a couple of years. The supply chain with paper. Uh, the other thing that I know is really exciting is our print shop is now all digital for the first time. And we've knocked down office space to expand or adding and promoting yeah, staff. I, you know, I, I learned about a year ago that, you know, I don't have an office anymore. Uh, Sam and Jasmine, I hate to break it to you. You don't have offices anymore either because we need every square inch for either storing the paper 
or for our, our, our digital presses. We're getting a lot of new equipment now just coming online. It's going to be amazing for our, our authors. What's well, been the most exciting part of this growth for you? Well, you know, it's it's been the research going into it. And I can, I can impress everybody, not really, with all these names of, of different printing you know, pieces and cutting. But let me just break it down to you this way. There's really like two, two basic, you know, like a two-by-two two matrix, okay? You've got sheet-fed and roll-fed presses. Both, both the kind of presses, they produce great quality of both. So it's really not about the paper, although I'll tell you about why roll printing is a better thing. The real difference in our printing is uh, inkjet, which is like your 1990s version of dot matrix printing where the thing goes back and forth versus, and I could use, again, uh, uh, fancy flowery language, but it's toner, all right? And toner is what really goes into the heart of all the modern, high-quality digital presses. And that's what we have always had from day one. Um, you will find other providers. I don't like to speak ill of anyone here, but you will find other providers that are quoting very, very low, artificially low prices. but using dot matrix printing. And that might be fine for printing on cheap paper, you know, just a quick black and white thing, but you're really not going to get the quality of ink coverage. So again, the 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 uh, equipment that we're getting is is it's going to be roll fed, which is going to produce great cost savings for our clients um, and for us in producing it. Uh, it means that, you know, one press operator can operate three presses. There aren't any breakdowns, you know, when when, it, when a sheet, you know, two sheets go through the printer, dang, everything is shut down. Well, you don't have those problems with, with the roll-fed presses. And also, you know, it's it's huge reduction in paper waste. Um, uh, uh, Book Baby has really turned into a green company, you know, thanks to efforts like Sam and Jasmine have been environmentally minded from day one for us, you know. But we're, we're these this new equipment is going to eliminate fifty percent of our paper waste. Uh, it's going to take fifty percent less power than our inkjet, you know, than our than our old inkjet. Or, I'm sorry, than, than an inkjet press takes. Um, there's no VOC releases into the air. Now I learned just today. I had to look this up. What's VOC? Volatile organic compounds, which is basically any gas given off by things. These presses do not release any of that, so it's really environmentally uh, minded, and, and I'm quite happy that you know we invest in this technology. And oh, by the way, we can print a lot more books faster, so that benefits the customers as well. Speaking of our environmentally friendly aspects, our print shop uses an extraordinary amount of electricity. And you were talking, Stephen, about our sustainable efforts. Can you tell us more about that? You know, and I, I have to give credit to our, our CEO, Tony Van Veen, for really leading the way on this as well. You know, we, we, we want to be a good steward for the environment. And we had been looking at solar projects for our plant in beautiful Pensacola, New Jersey. And it took a while to arrange all of this, but, but um, the panels went up this summer. And so we have, you know, anybody flying over the friendly confines of uh, 7905 North Crescent Avenue, Pensacola now sees a huge array of solar panels arrayed on the roof of our of our very big building. Um, it's going to produce about 50 percent of our it, it, when our machines are running, the solar panels will, will actually will actually um, power 50 percent of all of our electrical uses. And we use a lot of electricity when it's not being used. Um, I'm told that the number is. It's going to produce 750,000 kilowatt hours per year, which is enough to um, apparently turn the lights on, the air conditioners on, and the blenders for about 46 average size homes in New Jersey. So we're doing our part. I got to say, the state of New Jersey has been very aggressive in helping companies make this transition. 
and using any available roof space, especially uh, to have solar panels. If you come to the Garden State, you'll see all these solar panels almost everywhere. New Jersey has been a leader in that, and we've taken advantage of that. We've gotten tax breaks, so it's always nice. But really, the be the best part of that is being able to, you know, take less from the power grid and actually adding back into the power grid when when those few hours that we're not printing our customers' books. Oh, that's awesome and super exciting. Uh, so what other trends uh, apart from uh, decarbonizing do you see across the industry right now? You know, I'm happy to say the book reading habits have continued. I, I, I think maybe we might have talked about it the last time I was on this high quality podcast that, you know, the reading habits since the pandemic, they really jumped. There's only so many Netflix shows you can watch, you know, Amazon Prime. Once you've exhausted your queue there, well, you got to do something else. And so people really rediscovered the joy of reading. That went down slightly this year. But really, the, the the amount of demand for books is strong and getting stronger. And one of the local, one of the you know the most remarkable trends is the phenomenon called book talk, which is you know part of TikTok, the app that seems to be uh, so popular with everyone in the world. Um, book talk is a subset of that. And the New York Times had a great article the, the other day about you know, just the sheer power, the velocity that's being created by authors, by readers, you know, because it's a two-way type of street, expressing love for this author or this book. And it's a great way to, in fact, I know the book baby's on Book Talk as well. And we're contributing our own efforts there. Um, I, was, I was just telling Sam and Jasmine, it may be worth a blog post in the future. It could be worth a, uh, a Facebook Live. I will not be doing TikToks. I don't, I, I can't dance. And I don't have any you know, uh, squawking ducks in the background to make it interesting. So that'll be probably a guest host. We have Jasmine may, I think has already volunteered for that. So look forward to that in the coming months of Jasmine Gale and her TikToks about books. Cannot wait. I think not being able to dance was kind of the point. So I, I don't think you're out yet. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. But no, <laughs> and as, as we are, as we are doing this, this podcast, you know, it's, Height of summer, you know, it's all hot out there, and the holiday season seems so far away right now, and yet it's really not. Uh, I know there are millions of authors out there right now putting the finishing touches on their manuscript and wanting to be, you know, to have their book available in the in the marketplace. And in fact, I'm 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 writing one of my weekend emails just about you know how don't think of as you know people traditionally think of Black Friday as like that finish line of getting your book out there. I would move that up and, and I compare it like an ocean wave where you've got to get the momentum going for your book, get reviews, get your metadata uh, taken care of. I know Jasmine's going to do an indie author minute here coming up soon about metadata, which will be very interesting and very important. There's lots of things you can do to promote your book early so that you hit the ground running. So by, by the time Black Friday comes, your book is already out there, launched, people know about it. You've talked to your email list. So that's what we're encouraging people to do right now. You know, there really is no bad time to release your book. But for those who perhaps have a very seasonal type of, of, of title for the holidays, this is a time to, you know, put down the suntan lotion and maybe not grill so many hot dogs this weekend. Finish your book, get it edited and get it to Book Baby and we'll take care of you with all of our paper in our solar powered printing presses. All of that is such useful information. Stephen, can you tell us what's next for Book Baby? Well, continuing to meet the demands of of of, of authors really is is uppermost. I, I know that we've expanded our production facilities. We have some interesting, we have some really fun things coming up on the horizon, and I can I can share a little bit here today 
Uh, it's still not ready yet. So when your podcast comes out, you got to wait a couple months. But it's really um, something fun that we've been looking for for three or four years. Everybody I know loves audiobooks. And I love audiobooks. I listen when I used to commute, you know, my hour and 15 minutes. You know, now my commute, I have to step over my two obese cats. So that's nice. But people, you know, in their cars love audiobooks and podcasts and things like that. So we've always wondered how we can get self published authors to be able to take part in that. Up to now, the costs have been prohibitive. I mean, it would cost anywhere between four to six thousand dollars to do a quality production of your book. So it's going to be a great opportunity for self-published authors. Whether or not you have a book out or not, it could be a new book. It could be a book that you did five years ago, but now you want to offer it um, as an audio book. Um, the costs are going to be a fraction of what people pay to have it done by a professional. Uh, and Book Baby is going to be offering this, I would say conservatively, by the fourth quarter of 2022. We're going to have this offer. Um, it's going to be just like every other uh, product that Book Baby does, it's going to be simple to do. You're going to submit your manuscript. It's going to be read. You're going to have a chance to proof it, listen to it. When it's all good, it's going to be available on your bookshop page. And we're going to pay an extremely high royalty for these books. And I'm not sure the number is actually set. Sam, you may know what the number is going to be. Um, 75%. 75% royalty back to the audiobook author. That is stunning. Insane. (laughs) No one does that. We know we're going to get a huge rush of authors who have been working with us the last two or three years who have been asking, when when can we do audiobooks through Book Baby? It's coming. It's very soon. And I'm probably going to get a phone call from Jim Foley, the president of Book Baby, saying, how dare you share this information? We're not ready yet. Well, just just keep it between us, okay? Lighting a little fire there. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. All right. So are you going to be here to help us with that rush? I hear you're moving, leaving the continent completely. I'm going to be here in spirit. I, you know, president emeritus is a great title. You know, I can walk into Starbucks, tell them I'm president emeritus and they charge me full price. So Willie's not getting me anywhere. So I'm going to try it out in France. Uh, As a matter of fact, it's long been a dream of mine to, to spend some time outside of the U S I love the United States. I'm a good citizen, but I also love to travel. I've traveled all over the Pacific area and Europe. Now that I'm you know, on the East Coast, is really something I'm really more exploring. So, my plans are to you know stay with Book Baby, do a few articles, do a few emails, you know, point out some critical things, you know, like you know over your shoulder. I mean, that's my role, right, as, as an emeritus. But I'm actually looking to move to France somewhere around the um, early part of 2023, selling my house, moving over there, and. Um, you know, then maybe the next time we do that podcast, you know, there'll be palm trees swaying in the background and French music playing on the stereo and probably not a glass of wine because, you know, I can't do that during business hours. Oh, wait, I'm president emeritus. I can do what I want. And you're on different business hours if you're in That's France. That's right. Very different. Right. Well, we'll do, we'll, do the, we'll do the Zoom just in person instead. I'll come visit yeah. you in France if that's all right. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to brush up on my French. So far, I know Eiffel Tower and Croissant, and that's it. So That'll get so, you far. I'm not going to get very far with that. So <laughs> that's something for me to work on. All right, Stephen, last question. What have you been reading? Oh, I've, I've been reading books about how to retire to France. You know what? I got I got to mention one of the things that has turned me on to living in France. Peter Mayo, um, he did the famous book A Year in Provence that he did about thirty years ago, and it launched his career. He was this advertising executive in Britain who just wanted a different life, and he moved to to France back in the in the nineteen eighties, and the book took off. 
He was actually awarded a medal by the president of France because of all the efforts he did to promote tourism in France. So I've been going back and reading a few, a few of those. However, I do know that Daniel Silva's next book uh, is about to drop in about a week. And I forgot what the name is, but I love my Daniel Silva uh, novels with Gabriel along the, the Israeli head of intelligence. So I'll be immersed in that when I'm not packing up my house. Next up, we have a book baby author joining us. Dr. Rachel Dodds is a professor at Toronto Metropolitan University, a sustainable tourism expert, and the author of Are We There Yet? Traveling More Responsibly with Your Children. Thank you so much for joining us, Rachel. It sounded like you were in the midst of traveling yourself. Where are you joining us from today? Well, it was funny. This trip I was just on, I was actually on a research trip. So I was doing interviews with passengers on an actual expedition to find out about their sustainable behavior. It just didn't have anything to do with children because I left my daughter at home this time, sadly. So my first reaction uh, reading your book is, wouldn't the most eco-friendly thing to do be to not travel? (laughs) So what's the value of traveling that really outweighs that? It's a good point, right? Um, First, I just need to correct you too. It's not just my book. Um, My co-author, Richard Butler, is um, he's actually a father of three and a grandfather of seven. So he adds, he adds an immense amount of credibility to, to this book since I'm only the mother of one and grandmother of none. Uh, so yes, you're right. I think that's a really important point. The tourism industry is really important because we move our people to the point of consumption. So unless you can take the train or take the bus or ride your bike, there is always a carbon impact of where you're traveling. And so flying is probably the most carbon intensive activity you can have. And that's a huge issue for our industry. But we have to also remember that the amount you learn from traveling is massive. The amount of money that local economies gain from the tourism industry is also huge. And there's a lot of benefits. And so you can travel for good. If you you don't, you can be probably part of the problem. But I think travel can also be part of the solution. So we can't ignore the fact that there's always a carbon impact. You can do things to mitigate it. You know, unfortunately, right now, even though the airline industry has made huge gains in terms of efficiency and different fuel uses, it's still not a carbon neutral activity. And we are in the middle of a climate crisis, so it shouldn't be something that should be ignored. But I think one of the reasons um, that we wanted to put uh, this book out is we write a lot academically. We've published a lot of books academically, but a lot of the information and the research that's in the academic world doesn't get through to the general public. And there's the the masses, you know, there's those people who are converted, who understand there's a climate crisis, who understand that we need to be more sustainable. And then there's a whole bunch of people who actually have absolutely no idea. And so that was the idea when I talked to my co-author, who is actually my PhD supervisor from like 20 something years ago. I said, do you, do you want to write this with me? And he said, yeah, I think you're right. I think we need to try and reach people who aren't our, our current audience. So that's how it, that's how it came about. Yeah, I really agree with you there, Rachel, about how there's immense value in what you learn when you travel. Um, Typically, I think like when a lot of people travel, they think of hotels. And one of your tips is to not stay at chain hotels. Um, Why is that? And what's the difference? What difference does it make once you're already there? Well, there's a number of things. I think I think you're right. It's when I say, you know, sometimes you can't help but stay in a chain hotel. But if you stay at the Marriott, I mean, one of their key messages for so long was, was uh, just like home, I think, or no surprises, which means you could be in the middle of a Marriott in Heidelberg versus Nairobi, and it would be exactly the same experience. If you're a business traveler, maybe that's something you're looking for. But if you're really looking to learn about the local economy, you're really looking to understand and meet the locals and things, staying in a chain hotel means, and staying in a lot of um, chain restaurants, eating in chain restaurants, all that, is you're 
the establishment that you're going to is owned by a foreign company and all that money is actually leaving the country and going back to where it came from. And so from a travel perspective, you're not actually leaving anything locally. It doesn't mean that all chains are terrible. There's some that are better than others, uh, but it's worth looking to see what kind of an impact your travel has because as a traveler, you vote with your wallet and you have an, actually an awful lot of power. And so if you as a tourist or a traveler keeps perpetuating bad behavior, that bad behavior will stay in existence. For example, if you constantly have your kids take pictures of the man walking down the beach with the toucan on his on his shoulder, well, that's going to that's going to perpetuate an existence because there's always money to be made from it. So if you if you, you know, the the swimming with dolphins things is my big one because we as tourists keep asking for that kind of experience, it is still in existence. And so we can make choices that are better for us, better for the planet, better for the animals and better for the local communities. And that was the big reason for um, writing this book was to just try and provide the information, not judgmental. I really, truly think that you get, you know, you attract more bees with honey than you do with vinegar. And so sometimes it's just about putting the information out there so people can make the choice. And as parents, I'm a parent and I remember being completely overwhelmed when I had my daughter and I thought, um, and people said to me, oh my goodness, you can't take your daughter to Morocco. That's crazy. You know, you don't take kids to places like that. You take them to Disneyland. And it really stuck with me. And I thought, why do I have to change the way I travel? I want to go to places and learn about the local culture and meet the local people and put money back in the local economy. If I'm going to get on a plane and go somewhere, I want to make sure that my impact at least is going to be good in the destination. And I'm not saying that Disney is bad, but we can always make one or two better choices rather than assuming we have to be perfect. And I think in today's society, it's either all or nothing, right? The climate crisis, everything is super negative. But if we just make one or two choices each time we do something or change one small part of our behavior or influence one other person to change one small, one small part of their behavior, we can make a big difference overall. And I think that's the thing we need to focus on. We need to, we need to stop being problem identifiers and we need to be solution seekers. I'm curious from your example of Morocco versus Disney World, is, uh, would you say uh, Morocco is a better option, even though you would have to take a plane there? Well, I would have to take a plane to either. Uh, so, <laughs> so I have an impact whichever one I choose. And to be fair, I did take my daughter to Disneyland and she loved it. But I was horrified that we were, I think we were the only family carrying a reusable water bottle out of the million families that I saw. And I, and I know Disney has a really good environmental and social governance policy, but all I saw was disposable everything, single-use plastics everywhere. And I think if we as an industry, so if I'm taking the side of the tourism industry, if we continuously keep offering this, then the traveler who's going to the mainstream destinations like Disney is never going to realize that there's a problem. So for me, I would say, you know, I was, I was happy there was refillable water stations in Disney. It's really small. But if I had bought a water bottle for my entire trip, every time I had gone there, I would have generated an awful lot of plastic. And you times that by the 400,000 people who go through their doors every day. You know, you can do the math on the kind of impact from one single choice about just using a water bottle or bringing your own. And so I think that's what we need to focus on. You know, if uh, there's a stat, I think, from Starbucks that says every day we circle the globe two times with the amount of Starbucks disposable cups we use. That's, that's insane. And I'm not talking about climate there. I'm not talking about local economies. I'm not talking about all those things. I'm talking about just a single coffee cup. So the tiny things do make a difference. 
Yeah, that's a really poignant observation when you're describing if industries keep offering unsustainable practices, the traveler won't know or understand how that's a problem. Curious to know what other ways can people bring sustainable practices into their travel? You mentioned one about bringing a reusable cup, and I like that. Yeah, and it's funny. I uh, I was just on this boat with actually mostly seniors and mostly retired people, so barely any children. And I realized that almost all the content of this book, I could have just taken out the word traveling more responsibly with your children, and I could have just taken out the word children, and it would have been the same thing. So we we added a lot of things about um, building resiliency and a lot of games and a lot of distraction methods that we as parents and the parents around the world that we talk to have helped to do things because it's hard as as a parent, right? You if you're Kids have a great time. You have a great time. But I realized a lot of the information that I was talking to someone, whether they were the age of 80 and still like to travel versus 50 versus 20, they were the same things. How to book, right? You can book differently. So most people will go to TripAdvisor um, to look at something or they and they will book through Expedia or Booking.com. You can use uh, Book Different which finds you hotels, but it finds you the ones that are a little bit more environmentally and socially responsible. It's a really easy thing to do. You might not always have 100% of success finding the place you want, but it's a good starting point. And then if you, that doesn't work and you're looking at, you know, you want to stay at an Airbnb, you could look at EcoBnB or FairBnB, and they will offer you the same kinds of things, but just the ones that have already been vetted. If you're booking your flight, for example, you could use Skyscanner, um, or now you can look at Google and you can see the most carbon, sorry, the least carbon intense way to fly. So the really tiny things, even just from the stage of booking and, you know, moving back a step even further, when you go to packing for your trip, if you're going to somewhere that doesn't have a solid recycling system, you can take all the packaging off. And if you've got kids, you get your kids to take all the packaging off so that they're not distracting you doing something else, depending on what age they are. And just by number one, your weight goes down on your luggage, which uses less carbon. Number two, you have less garbage when you get there. Number three, you've already figured out, you know, what you need. And that's being more responsible all the way along. So I feel like there's a lot of win-win-wins that we can do that are small things. Definitely, there are big things, right? We can make sure that if you're going with a tour operator, you choose a tour operator that is a responsible operator. And they, if, if you can't find that on their website within 30 seconds of looking at it, then chances are then they're not. So the, the operators that are doing a good job are very transparent about what they're doing. And some of them are even B Corps. I don't know if you know what that is, but B Corps is a, is a certification. I'm not always a fan of certification, so I'll precursor that. But this is a system that has shown that the businesses will give back to society. And it's very, very rigorous. There's not that many of them in the world. But more and more uh, tour operators are actually gaining this to showcase that they're giving back, which is pretty, which is pretty interesting. Definitely going to use those sites to book my summer vacation now. Uh, I'm curious, looking at it from the other angle, what things can cities do uh, to help make the, the tourism they bring more sustainable? Oh, if for cities attracting visitors? Well, a lot of times it's education. It's really interesting. I, it depends. I mean, I, th- I really, truly think there are different segments of travelers, and there are those people who are already minded. Um, for example, I look at everything. I can't help it. I, I like garbage. I I'm constantly looking where the garbage is going, but your average person doesn't do that. They're not geeky like me, but um, sometimes they just don't know where to look. So some people are not interested. They're going, they go on holidays. They feel like they've earned it. They just want to sit back and relax and be pampered. Fine, right? Don't judge. But there's even for that kind of holiday, there's even more choices. If it comes down to a city, sometimes it's about providing the information. 
So are there bikes to rent? Um, what are the walking trails, especially if you're with kids, but just adults in general? You know, a lot of people like to go to the parks or they like to go to the water places where we as humans are drawn to nature, even in cities. And so just having that available. I remember, so in Toronto, for example, Toronto Islands and the parks were never advertised in the promotional material. It was always the CN Tower, for example, or the museum. But almost every single time I went to the park or I went to Toronto Islands, there were tourists there because it's a draw. The, the scenery's better. It's cooler in the summer. There's a breeze. It's beautiful. You can have your children run around. If you're an adult, you can sit and play. That's actually an attraction in a city. And I think we as cities don't realize that it's not just the top attractions. More and more, we want to experience it. We want to go find that really interesting local restaurant. We want to find um, somewhere that does something that we can't go about it. And we have fallen into the trap of Instagrammable tourists, tourism, where a lot of people just go get the, the photo and then leave, which can be really dangerous for destinations. And But at the same time, if you have a spot that you know everyone's going to go, um, I was in Juneau working on a project once for the Mendenhall Glacier. And they get 800,000 people a day, I think, in the height of their season. That's a lot of people. And so they changed their pathways to have one of the suggestions was, if people are going to go and take a selfie, put the space on the side of the path so that they don't clog up and congest the space for everyone else who wants to walk past. I mean, it's a really simple design thing, but those people who are going to take pictures are going to take pictures no matter what. And so you can do self safe, self, uh, safe selfies. Sorry. And it's interesting. Iceland does a brilliant job there. They have campaigns on how to take safe selfies so that they don't go into the geysers or they don't hurt themselves because it's a thing, right? Instagram is a huge thing. And I think sometimes there's been a lot of conversations with cities and other natural areas to talk to the influencers and say, please don't list where this is because we don't want this natural spot or we don't want this, this city area. Lombard Street, I think in, in San Francisco is one of them. Please stop posting pictures of this because the local residents can't even get to their houses, right? We, we don't want to perpetuate that type of tourism. I loved Lombard Street. I loved walking down it. It was hilarious. But I was there when there wasn't 200,000 other people right next to me. So the experience really changes for the city, for the visitor, and you know, for those people who are living there. And we, I think we need to just be a little bit more conscious of that. If I had 100,000 people standing outside my window taking pictures, I don't, I don't really think I'd be happy. Sure. One of my favorite stories is in Paris, uh, the uh, lock bridges where uh, couple was supposed to like inscribe their initials into the lock and then you padlock to that to the bridge and then they would just throw the key into the river and you know it's a real cute thing for one person to do but when you get hundreds of thousands of people doing it you're doing serious damage and they had to like cut off all the locks and they had they did because structurally it was too heavy for the bridge to handle and that's happened in lots of cities but it's funny what one person thinks right is it a big deal that i carve my initials here no but when everyone does it you've completely you know, ruined it for something or the little ice cream place that you take the picture of and tell everyone to go to the ice cream place becomes somewhere with a lineup a mile long. You know, even the shop can't handle it and the experience is gone. And chances are, if you're at the end of the line, you're going to run out of ice cream anyways. So, you know, sometimes it's just about those decisions, but I, I feel like we don't necessarily think those kinds of things through. And maybe that's not our job, but sometimes when you provide somebody a, you know, in tourism, we love it. It's always like the top 10 places to go or the top 10 places to shop or the top 10 beaches to see. 
But I was just thinking maybe we need to have, you know, the top 10 ways to be more responsible or the top 10 ways to make your packing easier, or the top 10 ways to entertain your children so they don't drive you crazy. Those kinds of things we consume lists as humans. And, and so that's what we aim to do is to just try and put an easy guide of easy reference points that anyone can take what they need. And even if they only take one thing out of the million and a half ideas that we probably put into this book, that's, that's a win. That's great. I want to tease out one of the phrases you use there, uh, not our job. Uh, so I'm curious how you see that balancing act between personal responsibility versus, I think the stat was 10, uh, 10 companies were responsible for like 80% of all carbon emissions, or uh, don't quote me on that. I don't know the exact uh, specific thing, but if more structural change is needed, uh, how do you balance that between uh, you know, individual action? I think it's everybody's responsibility. Honestly, governments need to step up and put better policies and programs in place. Businesses need to understand their responsibility. Um, those the marketers need to understand that they have an impact of where they're sending people, and the and the tourist has has a responsibility. As does the community, right? Which is what we've seen. We saw in two thousand and nineteen, right before the pandemic hit, is we saw communities actually fighting back, realizing they they had a vote. And so that's when you got the when there was they called it over tourism, where there's too many people in one place. And you had communities revolting and saying, we don't want them here anymore. And they fought to their government. And I think that's, it's been around for years and years and years, but in sort of 2018, 2019 really became apparent that there were too many people traveling to too few places. So some places in the world have under tourism, they would benefit hugely by having more people because of the economic impact it brings. But some places like Venice or Barcelona, Iceland, it wasn't just cities, it was you know, national parks, the pictures of Everest of people lining up to go. The impact of those kinds of things are immense. And I think it finally kind of came to play that when it starts to hit mainstream media, that maybe we have a bit of an issue with the tourism industry. We, we As a tourism industry, we got away scot-free for a really long time, right? It was the, the polluting factories you'd see on the front page or things like that. And all of a sudden, the front page started to be pictures of crowded Venice. And now anyone you ask would say, oh, there's a lot of people in Barcelona, right? And so it becomes mainstream. But then you have to fix the problem. And so you can't just outlaw and say, you know, no more people. The absolutes I find don't work. And that's where the incremental changes are what are going to come to play. But we all have a responsibility. I mean, me as a tourist, I now know better. And so I should feel guilty if I know better and I'm not doing something. But at the same time, the community has a responsibility to say, this is not what we want. And the businesses need to say, if we if we really truly want to have a long-term viable tourism industry, then maybe we need to take responsibility for our actions too. And so there's a lot of different plays. So kind of coming back to the hotel, yes, if you have an opportunity to stay in a local hotel um, that you know money is staying in the local economy and you actually have a chance or you know a, a local homestay where you know you get to talk to the locals and you maybe have a great experience, it depends on what you're looking for, right? If you're going to the city for a city break versus going into the middle of of Burkina Faso, it's a very different type of trip. So the absolutes don't work. And so sometimes you need to stay in a chain hotel. Sometimes you need to fly somewhere. Sometimes you, you know, there's nowhere else to eat except for some chain hotel. If if you do that, you're not a horrible person. But if you do that all the time, then maybe you need to consider how you could be better. But sometimes when you have the choice to do things or make better choices, I think that's what we want to encourage is even one choice. I would love everyone to to be geeky like me and make sure they don't throw anything away and recycle everything and compost, et cetera. Um, but for example, 
I think as humans, especially, so here's an example for Canadians. Um, I don't know the stats for the states, I'm sorry. But in Canada, we recycle. Most, most provinces and territories recycle. And so everyone feels like they're absolved of guilt. But they little, little do we know that only 9% of our plastic actually gets recycled. So 9% of our recycling gets recycled and the rest goes into landfill. So if you buy that plastic water bottle and you recycle it feeling all you know, high and mighty, the chances are it's actually still going into landfill. So we need to stop the, the, the thought process. We, I mean, I remember as a kid, I don't know about you guys, but what I learned as a kid was you reduce first, then you reuse, and then you recycle. And in today's society, it's 2022, we're like, we recycle. What about the reduce, reduce and the reuse piece? That's what we really need to think about. And it's not just about the environmental impacts, it's about the social impacts. What's the impact of your travel or your behavior going to have on local society and local community? If you wouldn't take if you wouldn't take a picture of some child in your home community, why do you think it's okay to go into someone else's community and take pictures of the kids in the playground, right? It's just it, those kinds of things, I think that some people could consider common sense, don't do unto others as you would like to be done to you. That, that's the kind of thing that we're forgetting about. And that's what we need to shift. But we, if we keep telling people that they're bad, we are just going to turn them off. So we need to encourage them to take a step or two. Why did you decide to self-publish your book? Well, we wrote it. I'm, uh, we've published a lot of academic books. My, my co-author, uh, Richard Butler, has published 20-something. He's, he's epic. He can honestly, the man can, can write a, a paper a day. He's, he's probably one of the most famous academics in, when it comes to sustainable tourism. And he actually was a bit of my guru when I was getting into this space. I just loved everything he wrote. And we wrote an academic book, actually, about over-tourism in 2000. 19 and published it with an academic publisher. And I said to him, Hey, listen, I'd really like to do something in the mainstream space. What do you think? Great. So we had, we were about half the way through and I was looking for publishers and talked to a lot of people saying, what do I need? And they said, Oh, you know, maybe you need an agent, but I realized it takes as long to find an agent as it does to find a publisher. So we did the, you know, I read and looked at lots of YouTube videos and all that kind of stuff about finding a publisher. And we wrote lots of submissions and did lots of research on, on the correct audience because it's really about the, the product and the market to make sure it's a match. Not everyone will publish your book. And we had a couple of people who were interested and one publisher who said, yes, great. We're excited. And he said, okay, you know, send me what you have. And we said, well, we're pretty much done. You know, we're open to change anything. We're open to feedback. And then we didn't hear from him for two months and we followed up and said, yeah, yeah, uh, it's so it's great. I think we might need a little bit more on Indigenous. It's fantastic. I'll send you through a uh, contract. And we sent through the contract and we looked it over and we sent it back to him. We said, great. And, you know, another four, I think three months had gone by. So we're at six months after we talked to him at this stage. And then I just said, are you interested? Because we kind of stopped looking for publishers once he'd said they were interested. And they said, yeah, yeah, we'll probably put it out maybe in October 2023. And I just said to my co-author, I said to Richard, I said, this is crazy, right? We're, we're, this is current. If we wait another year and a half, we're going to have to update the whole thing all over again. And I feel like we're getting back to traveling now. We need to get it out there now. And he said, okay, well, what do we do? Do we send a few more? So we sent a few more to publishers and we got the same kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, we'll get back to you. And they're, you know, most publishers are small. Um, if I had written a lot of books like Dan Brown, then I'm, it may be, may be different. And we're relatively well-known in the academic space, but academic publishing is very different than mainstream publishing. 
as I'm now learning quite a lot. Uh, and so I said, what, we, what about someone said, why don't you just self-publish it? If you've already got a reputation in the industry, then you know, you're not trying to get your name out there. You're trying to get your information out there. And so we thought, well, we're not, we're certainly not famous. Um, but I had just done a, I had just been in a documentary about tourism. So I thought, well, well, that helps, right? I'm, a, I'm on IMDb now. Woohoo. Um, maybe we'll just try it. And so I kind of Googled and looked and I found Book Baby and they did the, the layout and the distribution piece, um, which was important to me. And so I said, well, as I always say, and later regret it, how hard can it be? Uh, well, yeah, we'll just figure it out. And so there you go. Um, but the interesting thing too is that the marketing piece, I think when most people, my co-author is, is prime for this as well, you do something and then you, you send it and you think it's done. And so for our last academic book that we wrote on over-tourism, I created a video. We had an Instagram account. I sent it out. I mean, I think I did all the marketing with one of my students that I'd hired just to get it out there. The publisher actually didn't do very much at all. And I, so I was somewhat aware that it would be the same for a non-academic book. It's just been a bit of a learning curve in terms of how, but I'm always up for a challenge and I feel like, well, you know, it's kind of a learning experience. So off we go. We self-published and my biggest thing was that I did not realize that Amazon holds onto it for eight weeks before they release it. So it took a long time for me to agree on the cover photo. And I think had I used someone who I knew to do my layout, they understood me and the point of the book. It would have been faster, but it took a long time to get the feeling right. They'd come up with great artistic graphics, but I, I was like, no, no. So it was delayed sort of three months on the cover. And then I got it and I thought, great, time to, time to go to town. And I had got testimonials and I had had people ready to go. And then I had to wait. And so I've spent the last month going, uh, yeah, you can get it, but it's not available until you know, X date on Amazon, please pre-order. But that's very different when you get people excited about something, they want it now. And so to have to wait was tough. Um, and my other thing is I didn't, when, you know, when free shipping is, is fantastic, but when you realize it's going to cost you more than, you know, your newborn child to ship something to Canada from the States, that was a big, that was, that, that was a big, big negative for me. I, I started driving people to different sites rather than the ones that I'd get the most royalties from because it was cost prohibitive. So yeah, I've had lots of learning curves, but I'm still learning. It's great. You know, you just got to try it. And I, if you fail, you just try again. <laughs> it's kind of like being a parent. I think it's one of those things. You don't always get it right, but you just move on to the next part. Yeah. I really uh, hear all that you were saying in terms of just like trying to get the story out now, having publishers not um, lean into like uh, your urgency and putting that message out, um, not feeling the support in marketing. I'm curious of how else you've been trying to market your book. Um, have you tried, you know, putting it in uh, airports um, as a way to market? I'm curious to hear more about those efforts. Yeah, it's been, uh, so my co-author is late 70s, so he's not really into the marketing kind of piece of it. So it's kind of fallen to me, which is fine. Um, he's got all sorts of skills in other areas, and I kind of knew that was going to happen. I have struggled a little bit. I mean, I did watch actually a lot of, um, a lot of online programming about self-publishing in terms of making sure that you got endorsements early before your book went to print. And making sure you uh, had that kind of stuff. So I had probably about 20 endorsements from some pretty good people. Tried to make sure it wasn't just all, you know, I had someone who wrote an IPCC report, which is the inter 
Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, for those people who don't know, who was one of the authors. I mean, pretty credible guy in terms of climate change. He gave me, a, this book is great. So it's amazing. But I also realized that the average person wouldn't know what that is. So I went to, you know, the Family Travel Forum and asked for something. So I had a few things come out before the book came out. Uh, I have ha- had a couple podcasts and I had a couple blogs um, and articles. But then I also went to, I did a um, sort of search of, of influencers and have asked them. And now they've started to put it out through their channels. And then I also went to mainstream media. I, I learned a lot about all, I had no idea there was that many parent bloggers around and parent podcasts around. So I've been a- approaching them. I am struggling getting it in to, I would love to get it into airports, but I, I don't know how to get it through that bookshop. Um, a lot of people have said, if I want to, to put it somewhere, do you have a, can you put me in touch with your publisher or what's your wholesale price? And that's where I've struggled is because there isn't really that avenue when you self-publish to say, here you go, here's the wholesale rate, contact this person and order X number of books. So when I've gone to independent places who would like to use it, or I've gone to some hotels I know that are family oriented or some tour operators and say, why don't you give it to your, um, your passengers, et cetera. That's a great way to get it out there, but getting it into their hands at a wholesale rate, I've really struggled with because I, I don't have anyone to contact for that. Um, and I'm in Canada and there is no Canadian distribution. Book Baby is US based and charged for shipping and it becomes prohibitively expensive. So that's been a, that's been a real challenge for me and getting it into libraries, but I have been, uh, I have been, I just, it was just on CBC, which is the Canadian broadcast company. It was on, we had seven segments about responsible travel this last week. And it was on all of those, which was fantastic because that's really mainstream. A Reader's Digest article is coming out in September, uh, which we've just done, um, I did about a month ago and it's coming out. So that's great. I've had lots of people write articles on social media, different panels, LinkedIn, Facebook, et cetera, doing that. And I've also, uh, someone told me that Goodreads is a good way to move it up the charts. So I really thought reviews was the way to go. But on Amazon, interestingly, you can't review the book until it's released. So even though people had it because they bought it through Book Baby or I'd sent them a copy, they couldn't review it. But you can review on Goodreads. So I've been doing that to get it noticed. And I put it into a couple of competitions. Uh, yeah, I kind of try whatever. It's been a bit of an experiment in marketing. Sometimes I'm learning to make sure it's the right audience and the right um, feel. And sometimes I just, you know, I've sent it to travel media and said, listen, if you're talking about family travel, you might be interested in this. So that kind of thing. It's the more the mainstream, the, the travel media thing is okay, but the mainstream, like the libraries and getting it into, into the airport shops or getting it into train stations or those kinds of things, that's where I'm struggling a little bit is because I just don't have the know-how. I'll figure it out, but I'm one person with three different jobs. Uh, this was a side project, so I'm realizing it's becoming a full-time project, and uh, I've been traveling ridiculously for research and things like that. So, yeah, I've struggled a little bit, but uh, you know, keep at it. I feel I feel like you know, perseverance is is key. I feel like we've talked about this a few times, but maybe we can dive into Rachel's concerns with wholesalers for the listeners. Yeah, we talked to her off air, uh, but essentially we're talking about networking with the bookstores. You know, you want to visit, shop, talk to the staff and introduce yourself and tell them about your book. Hopefully you got a well-rehearsed elevator pitch by this point. 
Yes. And tell them where they can order the book. You know, most bookstores in the States in particular have an existing relationship uh, with at least one of the wholesalers that Book Babies making POD titles available to. So they can order right through their normal channels as though you're, you know, Delia Owens or whoever else. Makes sense. What's the wholesale rate she mentioned? Yeah, it's typically 45 to 55 percent, depending on the store's contract with the wholesaler. Sounds like she was right on track with reviews. Agreed. And speaking of reviews, the Book Baby Spotlight podcast could always use some. So please take a second to rate, review, follow, subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so that we can continue to grow. It only takes a second and we really appreciate it. Also, go check out Rachel's book. She's on Bookshop and you can follow her on LinkedIn for updates on her work. And don't miss Book Baby Reads, our new blog featuring a new independent published book every day. And if you're interested in publishing with Book Baby, email us at info at bookbaby.com or give us a call at 877-961-6878. And until next time, this has been the Book Baby Spotlight.